Today, actually, we're going to be looking at a passage that many scholars, many Christian leaders over centuries have considered possibly the most important little chunk of Scripture. This is what's, what's really the best overview of why we need salvation and how God accomplished salvation. This is a wonderful overview of the gospel. And so um, if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, I'm going to go ahead and set this up by reading the whole section, uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and uh, then we'll come back and uh, kind of dive in and unpack it verse by verse. So here's how Ephesians 2 starts. Paul says this, as for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath." But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's just pray as we dive into the scriptures today. Lord, we come before you. Uh, we thank you for preserving this amazing text now for a couple thousand years, Lord. And as we get ready to dive into it, Holy Spirit, we just invite your presence in this place to move on hearts, uh, to bring your word alive, Lord, to speak to us here today. We love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, well, let's dive right on in and uh, talk about this. Uh, to get get us there, um, I'm going to tell you a story. I was Years ago, quite a few years ago, before I was married or had kids, um, I worked, I was doing missions work with Youth of the Mission in South Africa. And I was over there um, doing staffing and doing some different things. And I volunteered uh, to be the driver because we were a couple hours away from Cape Town, uh, kind of inland, and I wanted to drive. I love driving and I wanted to go see cool stuff. And so I'm like, I'll be the driver. I'll go pick people up. And so I got to ferry people back and forth to the airport and got to hang out with some really cool speakers and like go to the townships and some different things that I might not have otherwise had the opportunity to do. Well, I remember one time uh, driving people to the airport. Uh, we had a group that had to, to head out. And so I was driving a Volkswagen van, kind of old school stick shift uh, Volkswagen van with a little trailer on the back for luggage. And I remember we were pulling out of Worcester, this, this little town there, and getting ready to head to Cape Town. And I, I come out from the two-lane highway, um, just road, and pull out to turn onto the split freeway. And I do it exactly the same way I would do here. Only one problem with that. They drive on the other, other side of the road. 
And so I pull out, and I pull out and pull onto what I thought was the right direction of the freeway, and I'm like facing oncoming traffic in a Volkswagen van with passengers pulling a trailer. And I very quickly realized, thankfully nobody was like real close, uh, I very quickly realized my error and was able to get over onto the side of the highway and then figure out a way to turn around and come around and get onto the right direction of the highway so I could take these people to uh, the airport. And had I not immediately realized that mistake, it wouldn't have gone well, would it? I turned in what I really felt like and thought was the right way to me. And it was not the right way, was it? It was the wrong way. And so I have uh, three little observations on a holiday Independence Day weekend in the U.S. of A. And that's a few things about how we view this scripture we just read. The first thing is this. In our world... Most people, just left to themselves, often choose a wrong direction, even to their own detriment and to the detriment of those around them, right? Uh, This isn't isn't like rocket science here. We all know somebody, perhaps you have a member of your immediate family or extended family, if they're sitting next to you, don't elbow them here today, um, that has picked a direction at some point in life that has been very detrimental both to them and to the relationships, and it's just been a very hard thing, and it's caused pain. Now, for most people, if they're in that situation, they don't recognize it until they end up hitting rock bottom. And so I'm just guessing in the minds of almost everyone, it's like, well, that's not me. Despite what your mom might say or your doctor might say or what your spouse might say, obviously, we'll just leave that off the table. Obviously, it's no one in the room today. But we, ha- we do have a tendency, don't we, to pick a direction that's actually detrimental to our own well-being and those around us. Now, when it comes to the idea, the big idea of grace or mercy that, that Paul talks about in the scripture, um, something else about us humans today is that we don't really believe that there's too much wrong with humanity or ourselves. As in general, like you go out and you do a man on the street interview with people and ask about sin or grace or mercy, and it's like, well, sin, I, I don't know. I mean, everybody would say, I'm not perfect. Um, anybody want to admit you're not perfect in the room here today? All right, you know, we only got about half the hands up. That means like half of you either uh, think it's a trick question, it's not a trick question. And you're like, I'm not raising my hand on church. Pastor's going to call on me. Um, or you've, we've got a real problem. We should just talk after service, okay? Now, of course, we all admit we're not perfect, right? In fact, everybody would say, I've made some mistakes. But most people believe that I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I think, you know, it's 4th of July weekend. I got my priorities or God country or God family country, America. None of you? Okay. They all came last night. (laughs) Just kidding. So we we think through like, okay, we're not perfect. Obviously, I've made some mistakes, but we kind of have an issue with the word sin. We're like, eh, sin, I, I, I don't know. In fact, when it comes to thinking about God and 
our need for grace or mercy, a lot of times we just don't see much of a need for that. Like when we think of God, we think of him in terms of maybe helping me out a tight corner here or there. I mean, you've all thrown up a prayer in a tough situation, um, help, help so-and-so. But as far as, um, like one scholar says, uh, God is more like spiritual enhancement, kind of like self-help book, right? Instead of rather, rather than a radical correction or rescue from imminent disaster. We tend to think of him more as like some sort of cosmic self-help being in our culture. And then one other observation, and that's this. For us in America... There's almost an unstated part of what we perceive as the American dream that goes a little bit like this, that freedom means we can do what we want, when we want, with whom we want. That that's real freedom. I can do whatever I want, when I want, um, with whoever I want, uh, and we usually add a little caveat to it. Um, Because we're civilized, and that means uh, the caveat is as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Now, there's a big issue with that, and let me just say, have you looked at the state of our country? There's a lot of people who have been sort of living by this ethic, and the only problem, well, there's multiple problems, but one of the most glaring problems is it hasn't worked very well. It's a mess. And there's a whole bunch of broken relationships as a result of people seeing freedom in this way. And so Paul, actually, in this passage, he confronts this way of thinking. Because before you get to the good news, the gospel, the good news, you have to confront the bad news. And that's exactly where Paul starts. He contrasts the gospel with the predominant thinking of the culture. And here's how he does it. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. It's like, no, I think I'm a pretty good person. I got my values, you know, straight, God, country, family, all that. Uh, You know, I think I'm pretty good on that. Um, Paul says, no, actually, you were dead in your sins and transgressions. We usually think of sins as, as acts of commission, like things you do. And Paul says, no, actually, I want you to think of it more as a state. And in that state of being, you're spiritually dead. You're like a dead person walking. If I had stayed on the wrong direction of that freeway, I would have basically been a dead person driving, right? Because I was going towards oncoming traffic at a high rate of speed. And Genesis 3 introduces us to that moment when humanity was deceived into thinking, hey, it's not enough that I can be a creation that serves God. I can be like God. And the effects of that have rippled down. Because God had warned humanity, hey, there's one thing. I'm going to place you here as a free being, but there's one thing you cannot do. Don't eat from that tree. The knowledge of good and evil. And humanity went in a direction of rebellion against God. And just as God warned, he said, when you do that, you will die. I'm like, well, I think I'm still here. No, you don't understand. A deep reality was just something was broken 
inside. Something died inside. You had a spiritual relationship with God and it was broken. So Paul says, you're like a dead person walking. You're kind of like a, a zombie spiritually. Apart from him bringing you back to life, the ultimate outworking of the trajectory that you're on is death. It's eternal separation from God. That's the bad news. He goes on. He says, in which you used to live. So there's an assumption here, because remember, he's writing to believers here in this book. And so he says, in which you used to live, there's an assumption of change and transformation that has occurred in their lives. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So he says, the, the ways you used to live, and literally in the Greek, the idea here is walk. It's a word used frequently in the scriptures to describe a way of life. And so he says, you're walking in a way of life, and you were walking on a different direction. You were driving a different direction down the freeway. And it was, and you thought you were free. I'm driving on the freeway. I'm a free. But you were driving the wrong direction. You used to walk this way. According to what? The ways of the world. The ways of the world. And he said, and then the influence of something else. And the ways of what? The ruler of the kingdom. The ways of the world. What are the ways of the world? It's all about self, isn't it? Selfish. Selfishness. See, Paul said in this, in this passage, Paul's saying, you think you're free. You think you're free. When you express your freedom as however I get to live how I want and do what I want with who I want, all of that, you think you're free, but you're not actually you're not going to actually free. You're following in a path. You're in a channel. There's guardrails on either side and, and no shoulder, and you're moving in a direction with the waves of the world, with the rest. And it's oriented on serving me, serving self, making much of myself. It's like that old Dylan song. You got to serve somebody. Anybody remember that one? You got to serve somebody. That was Maybe not my best Dylan, but you know. And he had actually, it was a really good understanding. In that song expressed like, you know, eons ago, he's a great songwriter, not such a great singer. Um, but he understood like, we think freedom means doing whatever we want. And, the, and what you find in the scriptures, he says, no, you're necessarily going to serve somebody. And Paul in here says, you're going to serve yourself. And actually, there's a, there's a dark power at work here that you may not fully comprehend that's influencing you to serve him. You're going to serve somebody. You just have to choose who you want to serve. Let me illustrate this to you this way. Um, do you have kids? Anybody have kids? Uh, anybody know kids? Anybody is a kid? Maybe you're a little bit older, grown-up kid, but you're still a kid. Um, <laughs> here's the thing. Nobody had to teach your two-year-old to be selfish. 
You didn't have to like sit him down and say, okay, when, when, when your uh, sister tries to play with that toy, you say, mine. You didn't have to do that, did you? It just came naturally. It just came naturally. We by nature serve ourselves. And Paul said there's actually a, a, a darker influence too, the influence of the enemy. And this is the big idea behind the prince of the power of the air. The, the dark powers, spiritual forces, it's, the, it's the, the chief, the big one that we see throughout Scripture, the evil one, the deceiver. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's going to tell you that actually the way you could be most free is to follow the ways of the world, influenced by him whispering in the background, and you'll find happiness, and you'll find fulfillment, and you'll find success, and you turn around, and instead you find, wow, train wreck in your life. That's the big idea that Paul is getting us to here. Verse 3, it says, all of us, in, in case you're thinking, well, that's great for them. No, Paul says, all of us, us included, we were all in this boat prior to Jesus, all of us. Remember, he says in Romans, all of us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We miss the mark. He says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. You have this word flesh, uh, sarks in Greek, and it usually refers to that thing that leaves God out of the picture. That thing that is just human and left to its own devices. The ways of the world, that way of self, this is that thing. Our, our flesh, our nature apart from the influence of God, the natural things. And he says, in that, we were serving, we were following the desires and thoughts, desires and thoughts. And here's something I think we can all recognize, is that um, we, we all know plenty of people, and we would recognize probably some in ourselves, that there are deep desires, which unless they are carefully held in check, they can lead to disaster in life, right? I, just look around the numerous recovery programs, uh, it illustrates it. Think, think of the examples in your head that you thought of a little while ago in your family, extended family. And Paul, later on in chapter four, he's going to call these things deceitful desires. They're things that you think this is going to bring life. This is going to bring fulfillment. And, and they're deceitful. They don't. And so he's going to list some of those things out a little bit later and say these are things to get rid of, things like greed, Greed. Um, just like you didn't have to teach your child to be selfish, you didn't have to, you didn't have to teach him to be greedy, right? <laughs> my dad discovered this because um, my brother and I would fight over the slices of pie or usually ice cream. We'd, we'd have a bowl of ice cream and we'd try to get the biggest one. And so he figured this out. He's like, you scoop, you pick. And so we would literally like weigh it out. Now my kids do this too. It's kind of funny. <laughs> Why? Because I would hate to have them get one more gram than I have of ice cream. <laughs> and you're like, wow, you're really broken and dysfunctional. You've got one too, don't you? You've got one too. 
He goes on, he talks about things like falsehood. Speaking not truth, right? Um, theft, the desire to get something for nothing, to take something someone else has unrightfully. Bitterness. A close kin of bitterness is what? Unforgiveness. And Jesus actually makes a really big deal about this one. Unforgiveness. Um, rage or anger. Um, immorality, drunkenness, partying, debauchery. That's just like partying. Not that a party is wrong, but you know what I'm talking about. And he contrasts this later on in Ephesians with the way of love, with life in the spirit, with be, being filled with the Holy Spirit, this idea of sub, submitting oneself to the Holy Spirit, allowing the power of the Holy Spirit to, to let you live a different way in the way of love, in the way of life. See, humanity's natural state is not ever-progressing improvement. We think it is. Because we have more, you know, technology and information and, and we live at, you know, in a pretty sheltered place in this world. So a lot of times we delude ourselves into thinking, but when you look at the state of the world, it's kind of a mess. I mean, even just recent, right? You got France is on fire. You've got um, the geopolitical scene where for the first time, you know, in my memory of my lifetime, people are seriously talking about nuclear war like it's kind of crazy you got like a billion people around the planet living in abject poverty all sorts of injustice people groups being oppressed the last century over a hundred million people killed because of utopian systems like communism marxism i, I mean the world's kind of a mess we think oh it just keeps improving See, the state, the heart of humanity is broken. It's broken. Humanity, apart from God, we are dead in trespasses and sins, walking in the wrong direction down the freeway. And we don't really know what to do about it, do we? All of our higher education hasn't been able to fix it. All the counselors and social workers haven't been able to fix it. All of our law enforcement officers haven't figured out a way to fix it. Because there's a sin problem. And it's not just desires, is it? He says it's thoughts that we're actually deluding ourselves. It's that idea that if I just pursue freedom... Uh, by doing whatever I want, when I want, with who I'm, I want, if I pursue my truth... I will find fulfillment. And we, and we focus on this, don't we? My truth. You hear this phrase all, all the time in our culture. And, and, you know, you're going to have your truth and I'm going to have my truth and that's all fine as long as those truths never bump up against each other and you don't try to push your truth on me. Um, all of a sudden it gets a little tricky, doesn't it? Here's the thing. When I pulled out on that split freeway um, and went the wrong direction, that was my truth. It was. I mean, that's the right way to do it. Back home. That's the way you make a left turn in the right lane. <laughs> that was my truth. You know what? It didn't matter, did it? 
because I was about ready to, to run headfirst into the truth. And God says the sta- there is a truth, a standard. We see this in Romans. He, said, he says this about humankind. Actually, if you want to, like, this little 10-verse section is like the first five chapters of Romans, where Paul really, like, develops this in the first five chapters of Romans. It's like this is a, a summary of that. And he, he says this, he says, um, for, for humanity, he says, although they knew God, God had, he just said, God had placed enough information just by looking at the world to say there must be a God. There must be a creator of this all. He says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then it says he gave them over. This led them down the path of desires, And you read chapter one of Romans and a whole bunch of things that looks like a lot of the stuff that we're seeing in culture wars in our society today when it comes to topics of sexuality and all this stuff. I I read the news, I'm like, "Ah, we're pretty much just look like ancient Rome and Greece. To the cultures, right where we're headed back, the cultures that, that Paul wrote to. And the message of culture is, is, is exactly that. Do whatever you want. Keep your truth, my truth. Live the way you want to. Do what you want to with your body. As long, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Here's the problem. It always hurts someone. When you live counter to the way God says the universe is, to what he defines as truth, because he is the truth, when you live counter to that, it always hurts someone. It might be someone who, who care, cares about you, who loves you. Maybe a generation coming down behind you. I mean, think about it. Isn't the thing you might currently like struggle with or, or, or that thing that you keep wrestling with and trying to get past in your past probably the result of someone who did something without too much consideration for you in the mix? Do you want to do the same? So you can't just do the thing that's right to you without it eventually hurting someone. Perhaps you you just hurt you, but you're someone too. Someone we're going to see in a second that God deeply loves and cares for. Perhaps um, the thing you thought would bring you freedom and started out as an expression of freedom has actually turned around and now you desperately wish you could escape it. Maybe that's debt. Maybe that's a habit. Maybe it's an addiction. And so we get through this and we come down to the end of, end of uh, verse 3 there and, and we see this phrase, by nature we were deserving of wrath and that makes us really uncomfortable, doesn't it? This flies in the face of everything our culture says and and what we think about God. It makes us really uncomfortable. Now, when you you see this word in Scripture, um, part of the issue is you see this word and you think about uncontrolled outbursts of anger or passion by an angry God. Don't think of it that way as much as to pointing to God's displeasure with 
with sin and a trajectory that's destroying the lives he cares about. And I think it's, I find it interesting when, when you hear about God's wrath or anger. Um, have you noticed that, that you're fine and you think you have every right to get ticked off personally, but you have a little bit of an issue when you think God might get upset about something? That's our culture. I mean, somebody cuts you off and, ah! <laughs> you sin against the, and harm someone, another one of God's creations, and we're like, yeah, God should just probably, like, you know, kind of hug it out, you know. And what we see, actually, the pattern in Scripture is, is, is God is patient, patient, patient. Then there's times when he steps in and corrects things. And ultimately, we know there will be a day when he will bring judgment and correction to this world and set everything right. Um, a number of years ago, I remember it was like right, right around this time, right around the 4th of July. And uh, we were, uh, uh, um, it, there was like a 30 mile an hour wind. It was blowing like crazy. There's a fire ban. And we live kind of up in the desert, and uh, my neighbor's house is across the hill, on, on kind of up on a hill, and all of a sudden, these like big, huge fireworks start going off, pop, 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 and I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me, and I'm thinking, these people Jesus must love. Um, I was actually thinking idiots. Um, <laughs> I'm like, call 911, and I run up, like, be, make a beeline up to the neighbor's house to knock on the door and warn them. And by that time, another neighbor has seen it, and is coming up the hill with a shovel, trying to, like, you know, put it out. And we managed to get it there quick enough before it, like, spread and lit my neighbor's house on fire and came over to my house. And then the fire department showed up, and they put it all the way out. And um, I think they ended up tracking down the folks and giving them a healthy fine justice. Um, and I was ticked. It'd be really funny if it's somebody in this room. You'll have to come confess afterwards. Confession is good for the soul. <laughs> hey, we're on the Redlands, you know. <laughs> but I was ticked. And I think I had a right to be ticked. They could, they could have started my neighbor's house and my house on fire. What are you thinking? It was like a 30-mile-an-hour wind. But you have a hard time thinking about a God who's upset and angry about some things that are destroying his cre creation and those he loves and innocent lives. And you go through, read through the Old Testament, the widow and the orphan and oppressing those. He takes that seriously. So Paul, in this first section, he really sets up, before he gets to the good news of the gospel, gospel means good news, he sets up the bad news. That you are um, actually dead, spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. That you were serving yourself, you were serving the ways of the world, you were influenced by a power beyond you. And it's hard for us to understand because it's like, well, I know some really, really great people who don't believe in Jesus. I mean, there's firefighters that rush into a burning building. Is that a, that's a good thing. Yes, that is. See, he's not saying that humanity is not made in his image with some noble characteristics. We're made in the image of God. 
and do some good things. He's saying the condition of the heart is spiritual separation from God and ultimately a pattern of serving oneself. That's what he's saying. So you get to that point, but then you you come up to two of the greatest words in Scripture. But God. But God. After chapters setting this up in Romans, he says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus came. He rescued us before we ever did anything for him. Well, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Here's what this says. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he's rich in mercy. Check out these words. His great love for us. His heart is for you. He loves you. As we saw a few weeks ago, he, he desires, he wills that none would perish, but all would come to a knowledge of the truth, that all would come to him. His heart is for you. And he's what? He's rich in mercy. God, who is ri- because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ. Verse five, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. He made us alive. Here, here's the picture. It's his action. I was driving on the wrong side of the freeway um, like a zombie driver, zoned out, and uh, as good as dead, and he picked me up and put me on the right lane and brought me to life. That's the idea. I was drowning and um, lost there and was unconscious, couldn't do anything for myself. He yanked me out and resuscitated me. It was his action. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, you still respond. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. There's a response. We're going to see that here in a second. But it's his action. He loved first. He moved first. Salvation. He accomplished it. It's all him. It's all him. And it's his grace. It says this, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And so there's this big idea. He's talking about a past tense thing. You were saved. Uh, that's an ongoing thing too. That's what the, the, the verb tense looks like in the original language. A past, ev- a past event and its continuing results. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, this is hard for us to understand, isn't it? Because we're like, I'm, I'm kind of seated right here and it doesn't feel very heavenly. I got some stuff going on. There's some aches and pains and, and, and life hasn't gone the way that I hoped it would. He says, no, there's a deeper reality that's truer of this and God in, who created the universe and our space, time, and all of that um, in, in the realm of what he says actually is true. He has raised you with Christ, even though you were born 2,000 years or almost after Christ was raised. You were in him. In him. That's the big secret to all this that, that Paul's talking about. We are in him. We're seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, all authority, all power. 
He says this, um, when, when you hear about the heavenly realms, we, it seems so like woo-woo out there. And one scholar, uh, Morris, says this, the heavenly realms are not separated from this world. On the contrary, they are determinative for this world. And so the big idea here is actually, this is a deeper, truer reality than the trials you're facing today. That you are in him, in Christ. He says, in order that in the coming ages, this, when, this is when it comes to fulfillment, when he comes back, this is the big idea that's so hard for us to understand, the already and the not yet. The kingdom of God is here, it's in our midst, and yet it will not come in fullness till Jesus returns. And when it does, he says, in order that in the coming ages, eternity, eons, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in what? His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Isn't this language awesome? It's like Paul is just stacking words, describing the grandeur of what Jesus did for us. And in the words, he's like, I doesn't really get it. You see the heart of a God who's deeply self-sacrificing, who came to this earth, who lived, who died, who gave of himself for you for you. The kindness expressed to us, his character. And then he gets to verse 8, which is such a beautiful encapsulation of the gospel and salvation. He says this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. By grace, by grace. Here's what that means. Grace means the completely undeserved loving commitment of God to us. So one of my commentaries says that. Completely undeserved loving commitment of God to us. Another way to think of that is his unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. He just, it's like that one song. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. But still you gave yourself away. That's a beautiful line, isn't it? That's the idea here. Grace. You loved me for some reason, unknown to me. God, from something rooted in his nature, mercy, kindness, love, he gave himself to us, and he then um, includes us. He, he acts to rescue us. Though wrath would have been the thing we would have expected. Instead, grace comes. Grace comes. By grace, through faith. This is how, and then this is the means. He saves you by grace, through faith. And really, when you hear of faith, it's not just um, three things that I can check off a list and say, oh yeah, I, I, that's true. This isn't the checklist. It is a, a trust. It's relational. It's relying on a reliable God. It's a word that, that is tied to covenant. That it is expressing a trust and a commitment that, that binds things, two things together. Um, oftentimes, uh, from John 3.16, believe in. Everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Um, I, I often use a stool as an example. That you can say, yep, that's a stool. But to actually trust in it is to say, I'm going to trust myself. I'm going to sit in that stool. And that's the idea here in faith is, is receiving something. What is it? Grace is a gift of God. 
not by works, so that no one can boast. You didn't do anything to earn it. It's a gift of God. And when it says this is a gift of God, or it is a gift of God, this is not from yourselves. Um, the Scholars think that, that it really refers to the whole process of salvation here. You didn't do it. You didn't earn it. Grace, his grace, him saving you, it was him working. But you respond, you trust. This is receiving and opening the present. Somebody gives you a present. This is taking it and opening it and saying thank you. You receive, you respond. When you hear his voice, when he draws you, you respond. You say yes. You say, I believe, I trust. That's the heart behind this. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But Paul doesn't stop here. And I think this is important because for so many, their journey of faith stops there. Maybe in a moment of um, response at a camp and a prayer, but it never, ever was meant to stop there. He goes on, four. For we are God's handiwork, literally in the Greek, a poem, a poema, a masterpiece. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Works. So here's the difference. When he says, you're saved by faith, not of yourselves, not by works. Works refer to a human condition or accomplishment by one thinks they gain status or privilege with God. Like, I, I, I can become a better version of myself, tip the scales in my favor. And then what he's referring this to here is a little bit different. Those were works of the law, works that you do thinking I can earn favor with God. Here's, here's works you do out of a grateful response to a God. Because what? Because you understand his love and the fact that he saved you and you didn't earn it. And this is an outflow of a life. This is what chapters four through six are going to be all about. Like we had to set the stage. You have to get the gospel. You have to understand what he did for you, the condition before he did that for you. Because if you don't get that, you will not live out of a grateful response. You'll just try to keep making yourself a better version of you, thinking still in your own strength, you can, you can please him. Instead of living out of a grateful response for what he does, that truly brings freedom. Because then it's not, I'm going to check off a box. That's religion. You see this in the Pharisees of Jesus' time. They checked off a lot of boxes, but in the end, they missed it. They missed him. They didn't love him. Love and gratefulness as a response to his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness. That's where it flows out of. And so that's why chapters four through six, he's going to say, here's how this works itself out in your families. Here's how you walk in the way of love and the spirit. Here's how it works itself out in the community of faith. Here's how this actually, here's where the rubber meets the road. Because what? There's been a transformation. The gospel is transformational. It's always, he created you for a purpose in his kingdom. Jesus says, basically, I want you to live in such a way that people see outside, see the good, see your life 
and they glorify God in heaven because they see it and they go, wow, there's something about the way they live. See, the gospel was never a insurance policy where you sign a clause and then whew, and file it away and do whatever you want. The gospel is transformative, transformative. It was never meant to stop it, just a prayer. In fact, that's why I think in a couple spots in the New Testament, um, we're instructed, uh, actually check and make sure you're, you're in the faith. If you never saw any transformation or anything in your life, check and make sure that it wasn't just a check mark. That you actually trust Jesus. That you enter into relationship with him. I'm going to invite Winston up. We're going to close in a song. And as he comes up, I'm going to uh, remind you of a story, that, or not a story, of something that happens in, as Jesus walked the world. It's in Luke 7. And Jesus comes into the house of a religious leader. And while they're eating dinner, this woman who was a prostitute comes in. And Jesus hadn't, we get the picture of Jesus, I hadn't seen her, but everybody else around the table and the religious leader knew exactly who she was. And they're going, man, how could Jesus let this woman, she's like crying and anointing his feet with tears, wiping them with her hair. And Jesus, at the end of this, knowing their thoughts, he turns around and he says, uh, hey, let me ask you a question. You're judging this woman who knows how much she's been forgiven. But you didn't do anything for me. And he says something. He who is forgiven much loves much. She understood. But where the heart of religion comes in for so many people is you don't think you were forgiven for much. You don't think you really actually needed the grace of God. And that's where Paul comes and he says, no, you were dead in your trespasses and sin until he rescued you, until he brought you to life with his amazing grace.